Well, this morning we're going to continue on in our journey through the book of Jonah. This morning we come to chapter 3. So I would invite you to take your Bibles or the Pew Bible in front of you. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 775, or use your electronic device. But have a copy of God's Word in front of you as we work through this passage of Scripture. Now, as we've shared, there are different outlines that are given for the book of Jonah, one of which was in chapter 1, Jonah says, I won't go. Chapter 2, he changes his mind and says, okay, I'll go. A little ride in the belly of a fish helped him come to that conclusion. Chapter 3 that we're looking at this morning, he went. And then next week we'll see in chapter 4 that he wishes he hadn't have gone to the city of Nineveh. But this morning we are in chapter 3, which is Jonah preaching in the city of of Nineveh. So follow along with me, Jonah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. May God bless his word to us. Many of you have probably heard of the events that took place in February in Wilmore, Kentucky, at Asbury University that they've called the Asbury Revival. There was a chapel service on February the 8th, 2023, and a number of students stayed afterwards, and instead of uh, leaving, they stayed together, and they started praying, and they started singing together. And this built and built 
And as you'll see in the picture, great crowds started coming to where the chapel was packed. Uh, People from around the country, yes, and even people from around the world, came and wanted to be a part of the revival. Uh, different individuals were petitioning, you know, that they might be on the stage. But the leaders of Asbury, I believe very wisely, kept it a student movement and would not let these publicity seekers and these heads of, of major uh, uh, religious groups around the country to come and take over this revival. On Thursday, February 23rd, that marked the end of the revival when the, the leaders of the college said the students need to get back to their classes and we need to give the town some relief because so many people had come in that everyday living was becoming almost impossible. Now the question is, was it a true revival or was it not a true revival? And the proof will be in what occurs afterwards. Does this revival result in people living more godly lives? Does this revival result in people being obedient to the Lord? Does the revival result in the word of God spreading and more people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? As the days go on, does this revival result in godliness spreading? Now, it's interesting. The word revival is not found in the Bible at all. It's not found in the Old Testament. It's not found in the New Testament. Neither Jesus nor Paul or any other biblical writer encouraged that the church come together and just pray for revival and an outpouring of God's spirit in the types of ways that are commonly associated with a revival. But the acts of a revival, what we would expect to see would be things that we would pray for and Historically, by those who have studied the scriptures, they would conclude that the greatest revival that ever occurred is the one that happens here in Jonah chapter 3. For in Jonah chapter 3, we are going to see everyone in the city, we're going to see a city-wide revival where people cry out as a whole city to God. One of my prayers for us as a church is the prayer that for every child that comes through our children's ministry, that every single one of them will be saved and not a single one of them will ever be lost. And as I pray that to the Lord, I remind him of what he did in the city of Nineveh. And I pray and I say, surely God, if you could do that, in the city of Nineveh, you could do that here at Maranatha Bible Church, that all of our children would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Isn't that the prayer of your heart as well? Parents, don't you want your children to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior? That should be your greatest 
goal for your kids, greater than athletic fame, greater than music fame, greater than success in business, should be our prayer that our children and our grandchildren know the Lord and that they follow him and that they serve him. And that should be the desire of our hearts. And I invite you to join me in praying for that, for our our church and for the children that come through this ministry, that as they hear the word of God. Well, as we approach Jonah chapter 3, the first thing that I want us to see is the change in Jonah. The change in Jonah. Verse 1, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God has not given up on Jonah. Jonah thought he could run away from God. Jonah thought he could hide. But God has not given up on Jonah. And this is my way of application. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but God has not given up on you. You may have made some bad decisions. Certainly Jonah did. You may have made some wrong turns in your life. Certainly Jonah did. You may be hard-headed. And God may have to do something very dramatic to get your attention. He certainly did with Jonah. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And can I just encourage everyone here, regardless of the past decisions that you have made, you can have a new beginning today. Regardless of whether you have followed God up to this point, and you may say, well, it's too late for me. No, it's never too late to follow after God. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And he tells him, arise, verse 2, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Right? Go. Go and do what I have told you to do. Even as you committed to do... After you had that three-day ride in a special submarine. And you know, sometimes when everything is pressing down on us, when we're underneath the discipline of God, we, we buckle down and say, okay, Lord, I give up. I'll do what you've asked me to do. And then after we're delivered from it, We don't follow through. Well, God remembers the promises that we make to him. And so he comes to Jonah and says, go. And he goes to the city of Nineveh. Now, the city of Nineveh, we're told, is a three days journey for Jonah when he's preaching. 
Now, that doesn't mean it took him three days to get there. It probably took him longer. It was a 500-mile trip to the city of Nineveh. But what it means is as he's preaching, can have one of a, a couple different meanings. It can mean it took him three days to preach going around the circumference of the city. It can also mean that it took him three days to go through the different streets proclaiming the message from God. But Jonah decides to go and to do this and for three days at least, it's a three-day journey to do this. I don't know that he just went through it once and stopped. He may have continued to go preaching the message of God. But notice what the message of God is to the city of Nineveh. The end of verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the Hebrew text it's five words. Now we don't know for sure whether this is the whole message of Jonah. That he only preached these five words. I kind of think it might be. Because as we're going to see in the next chapter, Jonah is there, he's obeying, but is his heart really in it? No, his heart is really not in it. And notice, there's no message of grace here being proclaimed. No message of, hey, repent and get right with God. It's just in 40 days, the city of Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And Jonah is preaching this without compassion, without love. It just, you've got 40 days, God's going to wipe you out. And that's his message. And see, Jonah is an example to us that God can use people who do the right things for the wrong reasons. You know, we've probably always heard it, probably most of you have heard it preached at one time or another, that God only uses clean vessels. God only uses those who are totally and completely dedicated to him. Well, can I challenge that thinking in your mind? First of all, which one of us is going to say as we examine our lives that we are 100% committed to God and there's nowhere for us to grow in our commitment to God? Which one of us is going to say, well, I've reached the point where I don't sin anymore. If we say that we have no sin, we do what? We lie, and the truth is not in us. God can take a prophet. Remember, Jonah is not the hero of this story. He's the villain of this story. And he can take this prophet, who though he's doing what God told him to do, he's not doing it with the heart that God wants him to have. And he is going to use Jonah. The next thing 
I want you to see is the change in the Ninevites. The change in the Ninevites. Now, what is it that has gotten their attention? Verse 6, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, Go up to verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What did they do? They believed God. The message has come, and they believed uh, God. Can I put a little conjecture in here for you? Of why Jonah may have their attention at this point in time. Some ways that God has worked. Number one, many believe the message of what happened with the sailors on the stormy sea has reached the city of Nineveh. That how there was this prophet and they were about to die and they threw him overboard. And the sea immediately calmed down. Maybe that that message has reached into Nineveh. Secondly, and I never thought of this before until I was doing some reading uh, over the last couple weeks. In the late 1800s, for those of you who don't believe that a human being can survive inside a fish or a whale, in the 1800s, a sailor fell overboard and was swallowed by a great fish of the shark family. Two days later, the shark was caught in a net. He was brought on board, cut open, and the man was found alive inside the fish. There was one difference about him, however. After having been inside this whale for two days, the fish's digestive juices had burned off the first layer of his skin so that every feature of the man was like an albino white, and he remained that way for the rest of his life. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but imagine with me for a moment if that is what occurred. So you've heard this story of this guy who was thrown overboard and the sea stopped. Suddenly he shows up in your city and he has a strange look about him. Probably all of his hair has gone. Some of say, well, that's not strange, Butch. I've lost all my hair too. But, but there's more to it than just that. I, I, I think sometimes we forget about what being inside a fish for three days might do to you. And so if that's the case, and I'm not saying that's the case, but this guy starts walking down the streets looking like that and saying, hey, in 40 days, this whole city's going to be destroyed, you're probably going to listen to what he has to say. Now let's look at what happens here. Verse 6. The king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, removed his uh, robe, and covered himself with sackcloth. 
He's following that we see back in verse 5, that after the people believed God, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. The people themselves, it starts with the people. And then it's going to spread to the palace. And they're putting on sackcloth. Now, we read that, but have you ever thought what it would be like to wear sackcloth? Anybody here in a dress or a pair of pants or a shirt made out of sackcloth this morning? Why not? Remember, this is not lined with linen or with silk. What would, think of burlap for a second, and you were wearing that. How would that feel to wear? It would be itchy. It would probably drive you crazy. But the reason they're wearing sackcloth is it's going to be a constant reminder to them, as it is in the scriptures, to put your mind upon God. And the king puts on sackcloth. And he also sits in ashes, which throughout the scripture is a picture of repentance. They proclaim a fast that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, can taste anything. No water. No food. And not only do they put sackcloth on the individuals, but we're told in verse 8, they take their animals and cover them in sackcloth. This is a city that's truly crying out to God. And then we see down in verse 8, it says, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. You know what's interesting here? As Jonah goes through preaching, Jonah and God would both agree on the fact that Nineveh is a very wicked city. We see that back in chapter 1, verse 2, when God originally tells him to go there. He says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. In the preaching of Jonah to the city of Nineveh, as far as we know, it's only a five-word message, and he doesn't have to list out for them what their sins were. They know they're evil. They know they're wicked. It's one of the reasons Jonah did not want to go to the city was because of how evil they were and how they treated their enemies when they conquered them. See, the Assyrians had mastered torture techniques and they bragged about it. The Assyrians depicted the torture that they did in great detail on the walls of their city and in the imperial palace. They created tablets containing every single punishment the Assyrian army carried out. You say, well, what did they do? Well, they would cut off limbs of their enemies. They would gouge out their enemies' eyes. They would impale people on stakes. 
They are actually the ones who historically created the crucifixion as a means of punishment. Another thing that they would do in order to put fear into the hearts of their enemies, that when they would take a city, they would take the rulers of that city and they would skin them alive and hang their skin on the walls of the city. They would also behead people and make pyramid piles of heads. That's why the Assyrians were hated. That's why Jonah did not want to go there because what's Jonah thinking? First of all, he may know that in coming years, the Assyrians are going to attack Israel, and that's what they're going to do to the Israelites. So Jonah just wants God to wipe them out and to get rid of them. But the Ninevites are conscious of their sins. And they are going to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness. You know, Jesus refers to the city of Nineveh in Luke chapter 11 in verse 32. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Think about this. The cities that Jesus went into, he ministered for three years. He reinforced his message with miracles, yet the people would not what? They would not believe. Here we have a prophet, one message in one sentence by one preacher, which emphasized wrath and not love, yet they repented and were forgiven. So as we think of this this morning, the question that I would ask for each of us to consider, is there something we need to repent of? Is there something we need to turn from? And I don't need to stand before you as your pastor and say, hey, here's a list of things that you need to repent of. If the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, You know what you need to turn from. You know the things that you need to repent of. You know the things that are standing in your way of being in right relationship with God. Will we repent of the things that God convicts us of? Now the third thing I want you to see in the passage this morning is the response of God. The response of God. Now, I was going to originally have an outline that said the change in Jonah, the change in the city of Nineveh, and the change in God. But I know if I made that statement that some of you theologically would be saying, wait a second, wait a second. God doesn't change. God does not change. First right? Samuel 15, 29 says this. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man 
that he should have regret. God doesn't have regrets that he did something that was wrong. Malachi 3.6 tells us, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You say, well, Butch, that's the Old Testament. Well, New Testament, James 1.17 tells us, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God does not change. Isn't that a great attribute of God? He's immutable. He does not change. And we affirm that this morning. But when we come to this passage and we look in verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, and they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. Now, that word relented, if you would happen to be here and have a copy of the King James Version, it's going to say that God repented of what he was going to do. So we need to look at the meaning of the Hebrew word that is used here. The Hebrew word can mean a couple of different things, but they're connected. Now, the majority of the instances that this Hebrew word is used in the Bible, it is referred to, it refers to God as God, the one who relents. Now, we need to understand that because God never sins, Therefore, he never, never means with God that he turns away from evil deeds. But from man's perspective, there are times when it seems that God has changed his mind. But one thing that I think we need to recognize and that will help us with this passage where it says God relents or God changes from the evil that he's going to do, is that judgment coming is always a conditional judgment on the nations of the world. In Jeremiah chapter 18, in verses 7 to 10, Jeremiah writes this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. Right? God says, if I've declared that this is what's going to happen, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, here's the word that we find in Jonah, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time... I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So what we see here is complete consistency on the part of God. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Why? Because of their evil, because of their sin, and because of their lack of acknowledgement of God 
But something changes in those 40 days. And it's very interesting. The passage doesn't say God sees what they said. No, he sees what they did. And based on what he sees, the judgment that was coming is not coming at this time. Why? Because they have turned to God. Now sometime later, the judgment will come upon the nation of Assyria. They will be destroyed by the Babylonians. But the city of Nineveh is going to be spared because they called on God. You know, we see a beautiful picture of this relenting of God in our own personal salvation. What are we before we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? We are the enemies of God. We are under his wrath. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. What happens when we believe? We are changed from the objects of wrath into the sons. Of God and put in his royal family. What a beautiful picture of how our God works. So I plead with you this morning if you never put your faith and trust in Christ, do so today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us, that we might walk with you, that we might honor you, that we might serve you. Help us, Lord, that we might be responsive to your spirit. We thank you that Jesus came and went to the cross and provided a way for us to be saved. Help us that we might firmly embrace that truth. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.